Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. John chapter 3, unlike the uh, worship bulletin, this is John 33. We're not inventing books of the Bible, I promise. It was just a typo. We're in John 3 this morning, uh, and we're going to be looking at the last part of the chapter. And last week I mentioned how John 3 through 5, there are four different people that Jesus meets from four different life places, and it shows us how God wants to give us real faith in Him. He says uh, at the end of chapter 2, it says that Jesus did not trust uh, those who were putting their faith in Him because they were putting their faith in him and just, just based on the signs, just what he could do for them uh, to get them out of their troubles. And it was very circumstantial, but he wants to give us real faith to, no matter where we're coming from. And so last week we looked at the person who's the very moral person who's skeptical. And, and uh, being a moral person, we know that if, you're, if you kind of base everything in your life on rules and regulations, um, you know deep down you're not quite doing enough. Uh, you want to be a little bit better, but we, we know we need something, but there's this skepticism that Jesus is the real thing, but we see that Jesus loves us and gave his life for us as we looked at at the end of John chapter three. And so you would expect to jump into the next story, the next person who would need hope and change by, by Christ. And we're going to get into that next week in John chapter four, when we look at the woman at the well, uh, this is a woman with a past. So if you're someone who um, has a past and you feel like shame because of things you've done, next week's story is going to be right up your alley about how Jesus gives hope to those who experience shame. But we see this story about John the Baptist, and it seems like it's an odd fit at this point in the Gospel of John. Why is John the Baptist back? In fact, if you look all the way back in chapter 1, we were introduced to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an odd guy with long hair. Not that people with long hair are odd, but he grew out his fingernails and ate bugs and lived in the middle of the desert and was baptizing people. He was a strange dude, um, but he was the forerunner for Jesus. He was the one who would go before Jesus and would make the prepare the way, as Isaiah 40 tells us, prepare the way for the Messiah. He knew his role, and when Jesus came, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And so we see John the Baptist back on the scene, and it seems weird. Why would this passage be here in the middle of all these stories? Some scholars have said that maybe this was just taken out of place. It was moved, like copy and pasted from one place to another. I don't think that's what happened here. I think that this passage is here for a reason. And one is, I believe John the Baptist is the example of what happens when your life changes. He is the result of a person who really gets what Christianity is about because John the Baptist could uphold his record up to Nicodemus in the, in the last chapter. He was a really moral man. He was a very successful man, but he placed his hope fully in Christ alone. And so when we get to verse 30 that Amy just read a minute ago, that doesn't seem like the best life imaginable. The words in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease even though John the Baptist says these things, sounds terrible to us. That sounds like the worst life possible, the worst life imaginable. And verse 30 is one of the most challenging verses in the entire scriptures because it calls us to decrease. It calls me to become less. We've been working our whole lives to grow and achieve and improve. And if you, if you think of every category of your life, everything that you do, it is always in this sort of upward trajectory language. When you're at a company, what do you want to do? You want to move up. You want to get a pay what? Increase. 
When you go to the gym, you're looking for gains. Everything in our lives, the category with which we describe success is increasing, yet John the Baptist says here that we must decrease. How is this good news? How does this actually lead to better joy? So what I want to do is I want to walk through verses 22 through 30, kind of frame the story for us, and I want to press a a little bit deeper into why this is actually good for us. Jumping back up to verse 32, it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. Now, after this is after being in Jerusalem for the Passover. If you go back to chapters 2 and chapters 3, we see that Jesus had had performed a miracle at the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. He then goes into Jerusalem for the Passover, starts flipping over tables in the temple, says that this place is not going to be a place of trade. This is going to be a house of prayer, a place for people to be known and to know where they can truly be cleansed. And so Jesus went into that, did that, and we see his interaction with Nicodemus in the middle of the night in Jerusalem, and now he has gone off into the countryside for some rest and some respite. And we see that both John the Baptist and Jesus are doing ministry here. It says that he remained there in the countryside with his, them, his disciples, and was baptizing. But verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Uh, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And so Jesus has gone south into the Judean countryside. He goes out of the city. And we actually see in chapter four, verse two, it wasn't Jesus himself doing the baptizing. It was his disciples, but they're baptizing lots of people. John the Baptist is also baptizing people in a place where there's plentiful water. And it was actually believed that within about a quarter mile, there were seven different, seven different bodies of water that you could baptize somebody. So imagine like modern day terms, think about Cleveland Circle, where you have both the, the BC and D line all within about a quarter mile of each other. We have that, but we can't get an orange line stop at the Roslindale Square. I don't get it. Uh, It's unjust. Okay. That's a sermon for another day. But you can imagine there's plenty of access to being able to be made right with God. And we see that when this was happening, verse 24, really just kind of to give us some context, was for John had not been uh, put yet, but not yet been put in prison. And so this is, there's an overlap in their ministry. And there's going to be a point where John the Baptist is thrown in prison because of his unwillingness to bow before King Herod. Um, he holds the moral line and he is thrown into prison and ultimately eventually beheaded. And so while this is all going on, uh, verse 25, this is one of my favorite little like minute details in the Bible. It says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Uh, this is a fun little detail. John the Baptist, his disciples or his students, um, they're having an argument with a Jewish man about purification. And we don't know the exact parameters of that argument, whether it was like you're supposed to dunk him overhand or underhand or how do you hold their nose. or their nose. We don't know what it was, but this was like the most Bible college sophomore argument ever. If you've ever met a Bible college student, they know everything. Um, I, I had an intern years ago. I won't say his name in case, just in case he's listening. He'll smile at this now, though. Um, and uh, he, he interned for me, and he knew everything. He told me, he said, I want to plant a church one day just like the discussions I get to have with my Bible college buddies at 2 a.m. I'm like, that's going to be a church of three people. Um, and it's going to be over the weirdest stuff. I'm like, that's not church, bro. It's like, so, you know, Lots of theological knowledge, not a lot of life experience or tact. That's the discussion that's happening here. They're having this discussion about ritual baptism and probably some sort of argument over, does the old ritual of bathing every day, does that go away, cleansing yourself outward, or is it John's baptism? John the Baptist isn't sucked into this. He's not there. He's way more mature than that. And this gets John's disciples or his students thinking. 
verse 26, they, they go to John and, they, and they're, they're curious and they say, well, let, let's compare Jesus' baptism to John's baptism. And they go to him and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. You can sense the resentment in their voice. They don't say Jesus. They, what do they say? They say the, the one, they say uh, he who was with you across the Jordan. They can't even say his name. You really don't like somebody if you can't say their name. If you call somebody, what's his name or what's her name? That guy is baptizing people. That guy crossed the river. He didn't call him the Lamb of God or the Messiah like John the Baptist did. And in fact, he was with you. The person who was with you, who you bore witness about, the person that you gave a platform, look, everybody is running off to be with him and not with us. Now, not everybody's running. That's an exaggeration. Obviously, we see that some were still going to John. But clearly, the tide is turning. They, they see the writing on the wall that their rabbi is losing steam, that their John the Baptist, his star is fading, that they seem resentful and bitter over this. And, but John the Baptist, his response is completely different. And this helps us understand verse 30. In verse 27, John answers them, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What's John saying? He's saying, none of this is mine anyway. I was simply given this ministry to be a forerunner for the one who really matters most. It, it was never about me. John the Baptist knew that his star was going to burn bright, it was going to burn hot, it was going to burn fast, and then he was going to be done. And in verses 28 and 29, he compares this to a, a bride and a bridegroom. At first, he says in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness. Like, you guys have heard me say this. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one. I'm not him. But I've been sent before him. And he describes it like, verse 28, the one who is the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. In the ancient world, the friend of the bridegroom was sort of like the best man. He was like hype man slash party planner. He's the guy at the wedding rehearsal or the wedding reception who when the, when the bridegroom comes out, he's on the mic and he's hyping him up and getting everybody excited. He existed to give joy to the bridegroom and the bride. His joy was tied up in their happiness. And when you go to a wedding, if you're watching a wedding, the joy is not about you. It's about the people getting married. I saw this video recently or a picture recently of someone's aunt who wore white to their wedding and demanded to be in the dead center of all the family photos. Like that, that's the worst. You don't want that person. In fact, they just photoshopped her out, which was great. Thank you for modern technology. She made it all about her. But I think back to our wedding, my, my, Amy, Amy and I's wedding. And uh, we go there and the, the person I remember most other than Amy today was our friend Eva. Our friend Eva is uncontrollably weeping the entire time. The entire, I mean, just ugly, ugly crying the entire time. Why? Not because she got free food. Not because she, because of how she looked that day. No, because she was so joyous at our joy. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. He's saying because of who Christ is as the bridegroom and who the bride is as the church, my joy as the forerunner is complete. Therefore, this joy of mine is not complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, the greater he is, the more joy I get. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's the more glory that Jesus gets, the more joy that I get. 
That takes a lot of humility. So how do we get to that place? We get to that place by really realizing that Jesus is that great. He is that worthy of humbling ourselves for. So today we're going to unpack this idea that humbly submitting to Jesus' greatness is the key to joy. So first of all, let's explore why Jesus is greater. Why is Jesus greater than we are? Verse 31, we see that he is first above all things. He who comes from above is above all. And then John goes on to make this comparison. He says, he who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. He makes this comparison. And we saw last week that the life we want only can come from heaven. We're all trying to get to a place we can't get. But the one who resides there, God, came down to us, Jesus the Son. He comes from above. He is above all, meaning that Jesus is absolutely greater in every way. And he compares this to being from earth. And what it means to be from earth is that every other person who has ever lived is finite. Every other person who's ever lived is sinful. Every other person who's lived is is flawed and, and our wisdom is limited. And John the Baptist sees himself in that light. He sees himself that just like any other human, his teaching, his ministry, his career is limited. And he's saying, I, I, look, I can communicate all this as best as I possibly can, but I can't make somebody born again. I can get up here on a Sunday morning and preach the best sermon in human history, and on my own, I can't do anything to move your heart. It takes the Lord doing that. It's Jesus who empowers his word. And and this is the witness that Jesus bears because it comes from above. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He is bearing witness. Jesus is telling us about something he has seen firsthand. He's been with God. That Jesus isn't receiving this truth as secondhand knowledge. He's not just telling us about God. He is the one who comes from God. He is of God. He is telling us what God is like. And what this means is three things. Number one is it means that because he's above, he has authority. This is Jesus' world. We get to live in it. I, I, I remember Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant, anytime he stepped on a basketball court, wanted to make it expressly clear that it was his basketball court. And there's a video going around on Instagram of Kobe Bryant going to an LA fitness and he's just cooking these YMCA all-stars. He's just like these guys, these nine to fivers, like who with beer bellies, he's just destroying them. He wanted to make it clear that whatever basketball court he stepped onto was his basketball court. This is Jesus's world. He is above all. He has power. He has authority. His authority is the author of all creation. And because he's the one who's above it all, who has authority over it all, he's the one that gives order to the world. He's the one that gives purpose. He's the one that gives meaning. And he's the one that gets to set the rules. In fact, Colossians tells us that Jesus holds the entire world together by his hands. Even what we call right or good or true or moral, there are certain moral aspects, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you just are going to believe because you're made human. We realize we shouldn't take other people's stuff. We shouldn't kill kill people. We should generally be nice to people. These are all universal moral rules. And C.S. Lewis tells us that that to have absolute moral law requires an absolute moral law giver. Jesus is that authority. So because Jesus is above all, it means he has authority. But secondly, it means he has perspective that you and I don't. 
He sees what you and I can't. We have an on the ground, on the earth perspective. Jesus has an above perspective from heaven. He sees what we don't. It's a bit like a, tra- a traffic helicopter. You, you ever seen that on the news where the, tra- the traffic helicopter and they're going over top to try to see why there's an accident? You're sitting there on, on 93 and you're just upset because you're trying to get somewhere and you're like, man, what, why can't I go any faster? But the traffic helicopter shows you that there's a bus of like children who are stuck somewhere and need to be saved. And that's why traffic's backed up. His perspective that we don't have. And it says here that no one received his testimony. No one received the perspective of Jesus from heaven. Now, obviously, we're going to see that some do. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've, you've trusted Jesus. But what this means is that no one has, who has earthly perspective receives Jesus' wisdom. It has to come from above. We have to trust Jesus' perspective. And only when you see this do things change. Tim Keller, he challenged New Yorkers on this passage. He said, and I think it'd be the same for Bostonians. He said, when it comes to a few areas that Jesus challenges us in, he says there are really five, money, sex, power, relationship, and integrity. One of those areas, you're being challenged. How you spend your money, that Jesus confines sex to marriage, that, that we don't just use power to run over people, that we should you know, be thoughtful in how we have relationships and be, be selfless that we should, we should be people who don't lie, that he says that likely you're rejecting Jesus' testimony in one of those areas of life. And we do so because we see it in an earthly way. If I don't get this job, I'm nothing. If I don't have this romantic relationship, I'm not lovable. That's earthly seeing, but what Jesus sees with earthly eyes or heavenly eyes is that our power is made perfect in weakness that he loved us while we were still yet sinners. His perspective that you and I don't have. But the third thing that Jesus being above all means is that he has empathy. He's not just a God who's above. Him being above gives him authority, but he is also the God who came among us, which means that Jesus cares. The one from above stooped low, came and got down into our mess. And what you begin to see when you understand that Jesus is above all, but yet stepped in among us, is that decreasing doesn't mean becoming less. It just means it's less about you. C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And actually, when you begin to do that, that's when joy is found. The way to kill any relationship is always to focus on you. Think about that. If you're, if you're a needy person who's constantly needing, needing affirmation from other people, you cripple any chance of having a good relationship. If you're constantly dependent upon another person to make you feel valuable, if you're a selfish person that you're unwilling to be vulnerable or available, those are ways that you kill relationships. When we think of ourselves less, we actually create opportunities for joy with God and others. The second reason that Jesus is great is because of his relationship with the Father. John invites us to receive this testimony in verse 33. He says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now that seal is this idea of authenticity. In the ancient world, when you would send a letter, you would take a wax and you'd mark it with a seal. And what that meant was that whatever was in that letter is what I've said. I said what I said. It's like iMessages up until about a year ago. Once you sent it, it was gone. You couldn't edit that iMessage. In the same way, when you put a seal on that, you're saying what's inside this letter is being sent and it's gone. It's out of my hands. This is a definitive act saying there's no going back. 
to set your seal on Christ, to, to say that he is true, that God is true, is to say, Jesus, I'm all in with you. You tell the truth. I'm banking my life on you. So if that means that I decrease, I'm in because you're that trustworthy. You say that this is the way to life, that you're the only way. I'm going to trust you. And here's why you can trust Jesus with that. Here's why when Jesus says that you must be born again, that you need a new life that only I can give, that you have to lose your life to find it, you can trust that because it's not an empty promise. Jesus can actually back that up. Now, if I were to say to you, hey, here's my credit card, go buy anything you want, you're going to go, okay, you're a pastor, you don't make that much money. Like, you're just, you're going you're gonna to know. But if my dad was Jeff Bezos, and we're waiting on the 23 and me, we're hoping that that's the case, um, you know that I would come through and you're going to get free two days shipping on everything, anything you ever want. Um, you know that I'm going to be able to back that up because of who my father is. In the same way that God is Jesus' loving Father is vital to knowing why it's worth it to humble yourself to trust Him. Because Jesus is loved by the Father, verse 34, for whom God has sent, for whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. Because the Father loves the Son, He's given Him control of everything. He's giving him the Spirit, and he's not holding back on the Spirit. And in the Old Testament, we saw ways where God would give the Spirit to people to fulfill certain tasks. He would give the Spirit to certain people to write Holy Scripture, to to lead God's people, to, to, to fight back against sin. Even now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given the Spirit to guide you, to remind you of Jesus, but you've not been given the Spirit the way that Jesus was given the Spirit. With full measure, with everything being given into his hands, This was a sign that Jesus is the Messiah by the measure with which he's given the Spirit. Isaiah 11, verses 2 through 4 say, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. That's a God you can trust. Jesus, because he's been given the Spirit, has all wisdom and understanding, wisdom and understanding that you and I don't have. Counsel and might and strength when we feel like we're at our weakest. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord, which we know is the beginning of knowledge. And that all the decisions Jesus makes, he's not making arbitrarily. He makes them in light of God's goodness and what is merciful and what is just. And because the Father loves the Son, and there's, there's no love like the Father has ever had for the Son. There's no Father who's loved their Son like the Father has loved Jesus. Because of that, we receive all things. And in Isaiah 42, it said that God delighted to give him the Spirit. And so we begin to see the verses 35, 34 and 35 run together that because the Father loves the Son He's given him the spirit and he's given all things into his hands, which means you can trust God with the big stuff. You can trust God with what's going on in the news. You can trust God with what's going on in Israel and Palestine. You can trust God with big overarching things like racial justice. You can trust God with with your stuff, with your future, your relationships, your joy, your desires, your salvation. You, 
You can trust God with the small stuff, the little details that you don't think God cares about yet. It says in Matthew 6 that Jesus even knows the number of hairs on your head. We can trust him because the Father loves him and he gives him all things. But also he's greater because of his relationship to the church. Looking, looking back at verses 27 through 29. John the Baptist gives this illustration of the bridegroom and the bride, and it's important we understand what's going on here. There's this metaphor that's run through the entire Bible that God's people are the bride and that God himself is the bridegroom. And this is why marriage matters so much. This is why as the church, we, we, we believe in marriage because if we don't believe it's just two people loving each other. It's not just like extended dating. It's this picture of the love of God, of Christ loving his church across difference. But what do you also notice about God's people in the Old Testament? And what do you also notice about yourself every day? Man, they keep messing up. They, they, keep, they keep leaving God. They keep running after other gods and after other idols. And in the Old Testament, there's multiple passages where God calls it adultery. That they were cheating on God with other gods. But what do you also see God keep doing? He keeps pursuing his bride. He keeps going after them. And he talks about this day when they will be his forever. In Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, it says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. There, one day that there would be one who would come and take God's people to himself forever. And we see that Jesus is the bridegroom and he has his bride. That he rejoices over his church and that this makes John the Baptist's joy complete. And this shows us that he must decrease but Jesus must increase. And you begin to see Jesus' unique place that to redeem all things. And every bit of scripture points to Jesus. Every bit of, of creation points to Jesus. And it shows us that there's no human marriage like in John chapter two that could satisfy. There's no outward cleansing like in the temple that can make you clean. There's no amount of moral rule keeping that can make you guiltless. It's that Jesus is greater and that he is the bridegroom and that he's here for you. He's here for sinful, wayward us, and we can find our joy in him alone. And when you see all this, you want to give him the credit. You know, no one comes out of the operating room and starts congratulating themselves, unless you're the surgeon. You congratulate the surgeon. John Piper says the people who come to Jesus love to make it clear that God gave them to Jesus. He becomes your treasure. He becomes your joy. And a blessed life is a humble life found in decreasing so that Jesus increases and he gets the glory. So often we view verse 30 as a challenge, but what if we saw it as an invitation to find real joy? Three things as we close. What, what does Jesus being greater offer you? Just three things. First of all, it's unhurried time. Look back at verse 22. We see this beautiful little blessing tucked in there. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them. He remained. That word means to stay a while, to linger. The word is actually where we get the word diatribe. You ever had somebody just kind of meander in a conversation? They're kind of floating around like this. 
And every usage of this word in the New Testament is an extended period of time. And notice who it's with. It's with Jesus and his people. You've been invited to be with God for a while. And when you realize that Jesus is greater, you can begin to see that he's inviting you to get to know him a little better. I think that's the value of our, our annual retreat we do every October, which I'd invite any of you who have not been to go this next year, is it invites you to time to slow down and be with God and be with other people. And I want you to think about this. When you take the focus off yourself, when you quit obsessing about work, when you quit worrying about the future, you find that unhurried time is available to you. You find that Jesus wants that time with you, and you also find that time with other people, that there's space to know and be known. The second thing we're offered is undue blessing. Verse 27, John the Baptist saw this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Everything I have is a gift. Everything you have, every opportunity, ability, blessing, experience are all from the Lord. And that means that even if those gifts are taken away, they're still a gift. Job said this in chapter 1, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And John the Baptist could trust that even though his ministry was decreasing, his joy was going to increase. Because God had always been faithful. God had always been good. He had always been giving him what he didn't deserve. I want you to take a minute. And I want you to, to think about the blessings that you have. I was going to have you write these down, but we've got time for this. Um, this is participation time. What's a blessing that God has given you? Well, something in your life you realize, I don't deserve this. Somebody shout it out. You didn't know you're going to have to talk this morning. I know it's cold. It'll, it'll warm you up, I promise. Your family. Absolutely. God placed you in the family he placed you in. Yes. Anybody else? What's a blessing that you don't deserve? Your home. Absolutely. How about having a home over your head? So many who don't have that blessing. What else? Your job. Yeah, a job you like. Something to find fulfillment in. The abilities to do that job. The wiring you have. Yes. Anybody else? Friendships. Friendships are a Great joy. Community, yes. That's the physical ability, the ability to do anything, walk, breathe, run, chew gum, and walk at the same time. All those things are from the Lord. Health, nature. There's so many, we could go on and on and on about the blessings that we do not deserve. The very breath in our lungs is a blessing. We look at creation and God breathed life into Adam. In the same way with us, that's a blessing. Salvation itself is a blessing. And this gives us an opportunity to glory in God. To say, God, thank you for all the blessings we don't, don't deserve. And then thirdly is undeserved life. There's a life that you want. There's a life that you need that you can't get to on your own. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We want to get to this life. We want the eternal life that we all desire and all want and all need. But if everything is in the hands of Jesus, it includes the way to be saved. It includes the way to eternal life. That By the power of the Spirit given to Jesus without measure, because of the love of God, who would give his own Son, the life you need is found in the finished work of Christ. And you can have eternal life. 
You can live with God forever through believing and trusting in Jesus, trusting that he's the one who can make you new, trusting that he's the one who can take away your guilt. He's the one that can make you right before God. But you have to trust him. And the alternative at the end of verse 36 is that whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's interesting that it juxtaposes belief and obedience, that our obedience is to believe, to trust him. And so we have to understand that if you do not trust Jesus, if you're not obeying Jesus in this way, that the wrath of God stays on you if you've not trusted Christ. You remain in what you already are. And the wrath of God, is what Leah Morris says, is the settled and active opposition of God's holy nature to everything that is evil. That outside of the saving work of Christ to make you right and make you pure and to make you new, that remains on you. And we don't like the idea of the wrath of God, but let me tell you why this is good. God can only be good if he's wrathful because God has to do away with evil. If you want to live in a just world, you, you need to believe that there's a God who will not rest until all unjust things are made right. But we often want to draw the line outside of ourselves. God has wrath against evil. You want a loving God? You want a wrathful God. A God who is committed to putting away all evil, including the evil that's in your own heart. And so without Christ, that, that wrath is on you. And to reject Christ is to reject the offer to be saved from that wrath. And it's as if you are drowning and someone reaches their hand into the water and yet you refuse it. But here's what Jesus has done. And this is good news for all of us is that Jesus took the wrath that you deserved on himself. That at the cross, all the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. On the cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And here's what happens when you trust Jesus, is that you're removed from the wrath that remained on you. That wrath is then transferred to Jesus, his, his, his credit, and his righteous standing is credited to you. And when you put your faith in Jesus, the work of Christ on the cross to take away your wrath, to take away your sin, is applied to you. And what we see is that Jesus becomes greater through laying his life down too. The great Jesus was humble for your sake to die on a sinner's cross. And giving your life to Jesus is going to take a humble decrease that Jesus first did for you. And so if you're a follower of Christ, are you living out this daily command to become less so that Jesus becomes more. And what you'll find is you'll actually find your greatest joy in that. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, are you humble enough to receive him? Are you humble enough to receive this decrease, to become less so you can find a greater joy in him? Let's pray.